They call me a juicy hop frog. You can see me in any wood bog. Don't you know that they call me the hop frog, hop thing frog? Welcome to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I'm Alicia Halliday, and this week you're in for a real treat. You can probably tell by the introduction music, it has something to do with frogs. Well, this week, I got on the phone with UCSF fellow Helen Wilsley to discuss her new study looking at gene mutations in frog eggs. Helen is no dummy. She got her bachelor's from Duke, followed by a PhD in genetics from Yale, and now she's at UCSF. She's interested in studying how ASD-associated genes function during neurodevelopment, and she focuses on a Xenopus model. Xenopus is a scientific term for frog. Dr. Helen Wilsley will introduce herself and explain her model. So I'm Helen Wilsey. I'm a postdoctoral scholar in Matthew State's laboratory at UCSF, and I use frogs to understand the molecular mechanisms of autism risk genes. So that's a good segue to what do you mean by an autism risk gene? So we now know that hundreds of genes contribute risk to developing autism. And so some of these genes carry very large risks. A variation in just one could be enough to produce a diagnosis in a child, or a couple could add up, each with a small effect. So when you say autism risk genes, are you referring to those potentially that were included in a paper earlier this year published in Cell that identified about 102 of them um, that had reached some sort of statistical level to be considered relevant to autism. Absolutely. So those are exactly the kind of genes that we're using to study um, because each one of those genes on its own contributes a large amount of risk for autism. Can you provide us like a brief summary what the study did, especially to paying attention to why? why? Why did you go about it this particular way? So because there are so many different autism risk genes that have been discovered, and each one of them does very different things in a cell, for a long time it's been thought that perhaps it's going to be too intractable to come up with therapeutics that could treat multiple of these, and that maybe we need to find a therapeutic for each individual case. Um, and what we wanted to do with this study was kind of test that idea and say, let's look at many of these different genes together individually, but in parallel in a model organism and say, do they do similar things actually during brain development or do they really all do different things? with the idea that if we could find something that they had in common, that A, that would be more relevant to the disorder, and B, that might be an area of biology where we could come up with therapeutics. So that's really why we started this study. Um, we, we chose frogs um, for reasons I can get into. Um, and, and also because we were able to then do drug screening to be able to come up with, well, are there therapeutics that could be uh, helpful for multiple different genes of apparently different functions, but overall share similarities during brain development? One outcome of interest in this study was neurogenesis. 
So why neurogenesis? Yeah, so for a long time, you know, some of the first autism risk genes that were ever discovered um, have very well characterized roles at the synapse. So right at the end of neurons where the neurotransmitters are that are controlling the activity of different neurons. And so for a long time, people thought that um, a big portion of autism was about the synapse. And, and that's probably true. Um, but we wanted to do a, um, a more hypothesis-free study to say, well, is it just the synapse or could there be other earlier events during brain development that are relevant? And so what we found was that for the top 10 autism risk genes, they all affected a process called neurogenesis. So how a stem cell in the brain becomes a neuron. So how it undergoes cell division, but also how it differentiates, which is the process of how it, you know, produces an axon, a neurotransmitter, and makes connections and migrates. And so it's really this earlier process of how these neurons develop that we found to be in common to multiple different autism genes. You use frogs and, and you know, we've talked on this podcast about different model systems, anything from songbirds to mice to rats to zebrafish. Why frogs in this particular instance? What a lot of people don't know about frogs is that their biology and their brain development is actually very similar to humans. And frogs have been a cornerstone in our understanding of the human brain for a long time. And actually a lot of the things that people use these days in cell culture with, with human cells in a dish were molecules that were first discovered in frog brain development. And so this conservation, we can take advantage of and have a simpler system, but still manipulate those same genes that still have the same function early on during frog brain development. Talk to me more about like why the frog eggs? You talked about bypassing the uterus. So the question is why frog eggs? Yeah, um, so frog eggs are very large. You can see them with your naked eye, which means you can manipulate them in many ways very easily, which I can get to about how we used CRISPR. Um, so they're very large, which makes them easy to use in the laboratory. And they're also aquatic. So they're not within a uterus, and so we can watch all of brain development from the very earliest stages all the way to a, a free swimming behaving tadpole. So that's a real advantage to be able to look longitudinally over brain development and look at the entire brain at once. And you mentioned drug screens earlier. I would imagine drug screening would be a potential and then also potential you know drug screenings being an environmental factor but also other environmental factors and you can manipulate i guess the culture the chemicals in the culture you can manipulate you know the temperatures and recreate different you know conditions and so is that something that your lab is is not the environment specifically but just you mentioned drug screens so yeah, so, so one main advantage of working with this species, Xenopus tropicalis and frogs in general, is that because they're aquatic, you can just put the drugs in the water and they're actually absorbed into the brain. So that's a very large advantage over other some commonly used model organisms where you need to inject it or you're dealing with the uterus that you've got to bypass. Frogs, you just put it in the water. So we're able to do these large scale drug screens and look at many different compounds and how they affect brain development. 
So in this study, what we did was uh, inhibit one of these high confidence, large effect autism risk genes, DERT1A with a chemical inhibitor. And then we added on individually 133 FDA approved oncology drugs um, we, because we saw this effect on neurogenesis, the idea being that we wanted to use drugs that were important for cell division and also how these neurons develop. We could test 133 compounds in parallel and see, hey, do any of these compounds make the effect better? Do any of them make it worse? And use that information as a toehold to, to be able to understand where's the actionable biology here? Right. Where can we actually affect to make these effects better? And you're not saying, I mean, you mentioned cancer drugs and I understand because they affect neurogenesis and cell division and that's the point of them. But the point of that is not to study a drug so that you can move it ahead to a phase two clinical trial. The point is to look more at a particular mechanism. So I just want people to understand yes. that so that they don't go out, you know, think that yes. some, some particular drugs may or may not be helpful because they Please. worked in this particular assay, so. Absolutely, the, the goal here was just to get some understanding. All yeah. of these drugs, they're hammers. We need a scalpel, mm -hmm. right? And so the idea was, you know, put a bunch of hammers on the situation and see which one makes progress. And now what we need to go in and is tailor that. Well, how can we make that more specific? What does that tell us about what's going on? What does that tell us about the biology that can actually help? Yeah, no, that's, that's great, thank you. And so now I wanna talk about this CRISPR technology and how do you manipulate the expression of different genes in an egg? Yeah, so one of the other reasons we use frogs is because they have a cool aspect of their biology that we can take advantage of. So when a frog egg is fertilized, it's a one cell embryo. And after that first cell division, it becomes a two cell embryo now. And what's cool is that those two cells stay on their respective sides of the body. So that cell on the left-hand side produces the entire left half of the animal. And the cell that's on the right side produces the entire right half of the antibody of the animal. And so what we can do in that regard then is physically with a needle inject CRISPR reagents, which has been revolutionary. CRISPR can come in and mutate one gene that we tell it to and very specifically. So what we've done here is in just one of those two cells, inject the CRISPR reagents and mutate a gene that we're interested in, in this case, autism risk gene on just half the animal. And then we can follow that animal over brain development. And we can say, well, let's compare that right half that's been mutated to the left half of the brain. How are they different? What happened? What is this gene doing? And that's very powerful because we have these, this internal control within the animal that shows us, okay, what's typical development? Okay, good, we've got a benchmark for what that looks like. Now let's look at the other half of the brain, what's different? And so that gives us a very hypothesis-free, unbiased way to think about what these genes are doing during brain, brain development. And because the brain is more simple in the frog, we can look at the entire brain. We can look at all of brain development and say, when's the earliest time we see something that's different and how is it different? And then of course, come in with drug screening and say, well, how can we fix it? So that was something I didn't know is that you could literally look at each 
half of the body and the brain, which is something you can't do at least in a mouse or a rat, which is the, what I'm used to dealing with. So yeah, sort of technology is not limited to frogs. The idea that you can inject it and see side specific, I guess, or hemisphere specific changes, I think is really, is really unique. Yeah, it's a, it's a really cool thing about frogs. You really can't do it in any other species and because the cells rearrange very early in development, they don't stay on their own side and so they'll move around. So that mm-hmm. is a, a frog specific aspect of biology that's different from humans, but in this case, it's something we can take advantage of to pick up subtle differences. When we first started this study, we didn't know if we'd see something obvious. And so we wanted that internal side to compare to so that we could pick up things that are a little more subtle than um, than maybe for other disorders. What Ten. were some of the genes you looked at? You don't have to list all of them, but how many did you look at? Yeah, so we looked at the top 10 autism risk genes from the Sanders 2015 paper uh, in the most updated list of autism risk genes from Satterstrom 2020. Um, all, uh, all seven, I think seven remain in the top 10, but they all remain high confidence. So these are bona fide, high confidence, large effect autism risk genes. So we looked at 10 uh, in parallel. So each animal only had one mutation in, in one gene. And, and these are the really um, the, the bona fide risk genes. So for example, CHD8, SCN2A, ARID1B, Norexin, DERK1A, CHD2, ANC2, POGZ, ADNP. So these are, these are bona fide autism risk genes that time and again, um, by many different groups, they've converged on these being uh, uh, genes that carry large risk for autism. You mentioned ADNP. Um, there were some others in there. These families have joined together, some of them through the power of Facebook, which I think is an amazing use of Facebook technology to bring parents together who got a genetic report, didn't know what the DERK1A gene was, didn't know what ADNP was, got on the internet or were connected by some other way and have formed patient advocacy groups around their specific um, disorder. And so they're relevant for autism. They have a lot of neurodevelopmental problems, but the rate of autism in some of these groups, I mean, it varies, right? But it can be as high as 80%. These are genes that have been shown in people to be highly linked to autism. These aren't just you know, ideas that came from something. I mean, patient advocacy groups have formed around the commonality of these genes. Um, yeah, actually, in some of our work, not this paper, but we have a specific paper on DERK1A, we've actually been able to predict some of the comorbidities that, from what we're seeing in the frogs. So in the frogs, we see heart defects, we see kidney problems, we see you know um, other things like that, and we're actually able to predict and then go into those patient cohorts. Um, and actually, we, we see that those kids have those um, similar comorbidities that we see in the frogs. That's the perfect example of basic scientists communicating with patient advocacy groups. Some of these genes are what's called pleiotropic, which means they affect brain development, yes, but they can also affect heart development or GI development or, you know, respiratory function. I mean, so it is very common for some of these single gene autisms, for lack of a better word, to have issues with other with, with other systems, but. Absolutely. And even when we look in the frog, if you look at where these genes are on during development, they're not limited to the brain. 
they're on in the developing kidney, they're on in the developing gut, they're on in the developing heart. And so it makes sense, you know, they're not just functioning in the brain, they're functioning in other organ systems as well. And I, I think that's another advantage of the frog is because when we do this drug screening to try to improve the effect it has on the brain, we can also at the same time say, hey, does it also help the heart? Does it help the gut? Does it help mm -hmm. kidneys? Um, so I think that's a real strength over some of these um, cell-based systems, which of course, a lot of times are, are more relevant to humans, but I think one advantage of the frogs is being able to look at um, many organs uh, at the same time and, and think about a holistic view of, of a of an of a organism. So let's go back though to what happened when you looked specifically at neurogenesis. So what did yeah. you find? You, you got these 10 genes, you manipulated them. We're gonna focus on neurogenesis, although I'd love to come back and talk more about other organ systems. But so what did you find? Right. And so what was really surprising to us is that for all 10 genes, when we mutated them in the frogs, what we found was a change in forebrain size. And so the forebrain is the area of the brain that's uh, responsible for higher order thinking and learning and emotion processing. Um, so that was intriguing. And what was also interesting is that and um, for one group of the top 10 genes, it made the forebrain larger. And for a different portion of those top 10 genes, it made the forebrain smaller. Um, and so, but uh, regardless of the size change, what we found is that when we looked at the number of neural stem cells, those dividing cells in the brain, and compared it to the number of differentiated cells, those cells that are mature neurons and are signaling and making synapses, and what we found is that ratio was disrupted in the same way that it was how you had more neural stem cells compared to those uh, differentiated neurons, um, regardless of whether that brain ended up larger or smaller. So it seemed to be an overabundance of those neural stem cells um, compared to mature neurons. That's really, really helpful. And that helps explain why the change in the forebrain size is now you right. have a molecular mechanism exactly. that can help explain that. So tell me a little bit about some of the manipulations that you did around um, changing this process and what were some of the findings when you did some of the manipulations? So we then turned to drug screening to be able to identify any particular drugs that could either make this outcome on these neural stem cells uh, better, more like an unmanipulated animal, or actually we're also interested in any drugs that made it worse. And um, for the idea that they made that those equally will give us some idea of the biology underlying this effect. And what we found actually is we found uh, uh, one drug, estromucine, uh, which is in the estrogen that activates the estrogen signaling pathway that made the effect better. And we found two drugs also in the estrogen pathway, but in this case, inhibiting the estrogen pathway that made it worse. Um, and so there we had three hits out of 133 that were hitting the estrogen signaling pathway, suggesting to us that estrogen signaling intersects this process uh, that is relevant to autism. The Autism Science Foundation has been looking very closely about why fewer females are diagnosed with autism compared to males. But yeah. I just want to make a, make a statement when you found an effective estrogen what that means in terms of the neurobiology versus what that means in terms of 
thinking about risk of autism on an individual basis. So when we found that estrogen intersects the biology of these autism risk genes, that was really intriguing to us given the profound sex bias with many more males compared to females being diagnosed with autism. And so what we wanted to do was dissect a little bit more about what estrogen does during brain development. Um, and to do that, again, we turned to the frog. We added estrogen to the frogs and said, well, what happens? And what we found was actually that it intersects with a really important developmental pathway named sonic hedgehog signaling, uh, named because it was first discovered in flies. Uh, but uh, this pathway plays really important roles during development of all organ systems, both in the patterning of them and also in cell division and really critical roles during um, uh, brain development. And what we found that is that estrogen inhibits that pathway and, and that's how it's really functioning in this role during neurogenesis. And so um, that really kind of rules out estrogen a little bit as a potential therapeutic on its own. Inhibiting sonic hedgehog signaling is a huge effect that you don't really wanna play around with, but that also gives us some insight into where we need to be developing more targeted therapies. So how can we inhibit sonic hedgehog signaling in the right cells at the right time? Um, how do you do it to make it a little bit more tailored? Um, obviously, estrogen plays major roles in sexual differentiation. And so that's, that's really kind of off the table in terms of something that, that would be um, a potential therapeutic. And I think there's a lot of future work to start to think about how we can take this understanding and this information about the role of estrogen and start to tailor um, a more. But that, that, that will take a, a long time. Can you tell me what's next? Like just a little hint. So what we're really excited to start thinking about now is, you know, could estrogen be a potential mechanism for this female protective effect? And actually we really don't understand a lot about whether the fetal female brain experiences more estrogen. Where does the estrogen come from? Is it coming from the developing gonads or does the brain actually produce its own estrogen? And so one other thing we looked at this in, in this paper was that we actually inhibited the reception of estrogen within the brain itself. Um, and that also caused a small brain. Um, and so again, so inhibiting estrogen itself can produce the same effect on neurogenesis. And so we think that actually the brain is making its own estrogen and that perhaps the female developing brain makes a little bit more and that that may provide buffering against some of these genetic variations that predispose somebody to developing autism. Um, and so that's what's next. That's what we're really excited about is thinking about sexual dimorphism. How does the female brain develop differently from the male? brain? How does that intersect with genetic risk for autism? And where along that way can we leverage our understanding of female resilience to come in and think about potential therapeutics? That's great. That's, that's the, all the right words, resilience, protection, all of those things. Well, I want to thank you so much for participating in this podcast. And I have a feeling that I'm going to be calling on you again to either comment or share your own data or provide your perspective on, um, on you know, this basic science research looking at autism. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for including me. So now that you've heard of CRISPR, the gene editing tool, you probably know that there is some fear that it's going to be used to genetically manipulate embryos and possibly fetuses in people. Science is so far away from that, I honestly wouldn't worry about it. You know it's been tried in China unethically, and now the guy that did it is in jail. 
It's a technology, though, that's helping scientists understand the immediate and downstream effects of gene mutations. And while Dr. Wilsley described findings in a frog, another researcher at Harvard, Dr. Xin Jin, used CRISPR technology to introduce not 10, but 35 different autism-related mutations in embryonic mice brains. The goal was to look at how cells from the brain were affected when each one of these 35 genes was individually disrupted. It isn't the same as developing 35 genetically engineered mouse lines, but the endpoint was also not the full mouse per se. It was brain development and examining how these genes express themselves in different parts of brain tissue. They also compared these findings that they found to what is known about human brain tissue in people with autism. The goal of this study was to show the technology and the methods were feasible, but the study actually did so much more. Using these 35 different genetic mutations in mouse brain cells, it grouped together the changes that occurred after these mutations in different cells not just the neurons, which are the cells that communicate with each other in the brain, but astrocytes and microglia, which are the structural supports in immune cells, how they form into networks and how they're co-expressed with each other during these mutations compared to those without the mutations. What was interesting is that some genes affected these structural support cells, the astrocytes, more than they affected communication brain cells or neurons. And other other mutations affected the brain cells more. There was a lot of convergent networks, meaning that changing the expression of one gene didn't just do one thing, it did multiple things. And also some of the same network nodes that were altered in these embryonic mice brains were also altered in brain tissue of people with autism. These types of studies where multiple genes can be disrupted individually can really open up the field of understanding autism. And as Dr. Wilsey said, screening for not just drug treatments, but environmental factors and yes, protective mechanisms. The other thing is, is that these mutations were done in isolation. What happens if you manipulate more than one gene together or a gene and an environmental factor? Because you're using mouse brains and frog embryos, you can do this much quicker than you could in in another type of model system. But again, while Dr. Wilsey mentioned estrogen, don't go slapping on an estrogen patch now. But now that scientists have understood some of the basic mechanisms, more sophisticated interventions that don't have a lot of messy, unwanted effects can be studied. Thank you so much for listening this week, and I hope you enjoyed our special interview with Dr. Helen Wilsley of UCSF. Well, they call me a juicy hop frog. You can see me in any wood bog. Don't you know that they call me the hop frog? Hop, 